Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Fempreneur Marketing Podcast. I'm the show producer, Liz Campbell. Today's episode is an interview with Paul Sampson, the CEO and co-founder of Licked, a commercial music licensing company. His story is one of adversity and perseverance, and we hope you're inspired by it. Also, if you're a female entrepreneur looking to grow or start her business, join us for the launch party of the Fempreneur Marketing book Lindsay talks about in this podcast. You can get all the information you'll need at yycfempreneur.com. So tell us the story about how, how Licked began, the idea and, and everything. Okay, so I, I since, since 2005, I've been in, in what's called synchronization licensing, music licensing. And that basically it involves the licensing of music to picture. So anytime you watch a film or a TV show or an advert or anything like that, a trailer, there's music in it, right? And someone represents the writers, the artists, whatever, that, the catalog. Um, you creatively pitch to put that music to picture. If it wins out and they want that song, then you negotiate a price on behalf of the rights owners. And that's how music gets put into picture. Mm-hmm. But if you think about adverts, TV programs, films and trailers, they're all, all those sectors are underpinned by a production company, right? And that's your client. And then it occurs to me one day uh, in 2015 that 2.8 billion people now have a production company in their pocket and the world's most generous commissioning editor, right? In YouTube or Facebook or Instagram. You don't have to convince the head of Factual at BBC Two to commission a documentary. You can just shoot it and publish it. And if you've got an audience, it will get seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then it occurs to me, well, how would, how would those people go about getting music rights cleared, given the growth in that space? So I know how hard it can be if you've got a music licensing team, a music supervisor, legal and business affairs department budget and time right yeah. uh, it will take a long time um and when i looked in that space i realized that there was a, just a gap in the market that mm-hmm. everyone in my world was scrabbling around to try and turn their revenues into growth year or near by five to ten percent mm-hmm. i was like well, there's no real opportunity there mm-hmm. right sync is always going to be two to four percent of the entire music revenue uh in the music industry how could you affect that more importantly mm-hmm. and then i thought well actually consumer sync right everyone's a production company now and with every passing generation you know i've got nieces and nephews that are two to four years old and they're already swiping and one of them's got a youtube account and you just sit there going right this is ridiculous that people can't license music it right is, yeah so then you look at, I looked at what was happening on YouTube and there's something called copyright claims, which you might be familiar with. Yeah, and, and stop and, and, with a few little things from time to time on YouTube <laughs> myself. <laughs> right. So when I looked at that and I was like, wow, so people can use any song they want, but only if they're willing to forego all of their revenue. And for mm-hmm. revenue, read salary. It's their income, right? Mm-hmm. Now, it's fine for me and my friends because we're not YouTubers per se. You know, if you want to, claim the video of my mother's 60th birthday then you, by all means keep the point zero 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 seven pence that comes from the 40 views from her family in cyprus right yeah. <laughs> we couldn't make the party but if it was my income then i like all of them would avoid commercial music like the plague mm-hmm. you look at why those claims are, are happening and it's something called content id so uh, it's sort of a uh, complete accident that this gap's been created content idea was built by youtube and think of it as shazam yeah for youtube right uh, it was built to enable rights holders to be able to identify 
when their music was being used without their permission and then decide what to do about that. And the reason that they can ac accurately presume each use of their music is unlicensed is because there's nowhere to license it. Mm. They know you didn't get permission because we wouldn't have given it to you because you haven't got the money we want to license it for. And we know we haven't given the rights to a third party. So this is an illegal use. Yeah. So the first thing you do, I did was sat down with a developer I knew and look at the YouTube APIs. Uh, he looked at it in great depth and came back and said, I think there is a way to interact with content ID and automatically release copyright claims. If you can prove there was a legal license in place. Yeah. So we, we had both been at a business that went into administration. We'd been formulating this idea. The timing was right. Instead, he went and got a job. And I said, I'm going to go and raise some money and I'll come back and get you uh, when I've got it and we'll go and do this thing together. And that's what, that's what we did. I, I took that summer off. I spent four months pitching this idea in, in just tech format. Found uh, what is now my business partner, Simon, uh, who had just sold a music rights business, understood the landscape, hadn't thought about this, was convinced by me that it was a great opportunity, and he gave me the seed funding to get started. Um, and so we incorporated and we started building, and that was, that was three and a half years ago now. Okay. So we just turned three in November, but three and a half years ago was when I started raising the money. Yeah, and you and I met at Vid Summit in what month was that? September. Yeah. October. 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 Oh, yeah, 2019. Yeah. Met at Vid Summit, and so you've been doing a lot of that in the last. How many years have you been kind of trying to, you know, get out there and meet people at these events and stuff? Like, is it is it working well? Like, how's that all going? Uh, it could. I think any any uh, startup founder would say to you, it could be going better. Like we we. All, we all want to be in the billion dollar revenue mark, but um, how long? So it took a year and a bit to build the platform. Yeah. We went live in beta maybe 18 months ago. Um, we raised the next round, uh, which was a significant raise in November of 2018. Um, and that allowed me to build a team. So there were four of us really for the first two years and two of them were developers. Okay. Um, so, only this last nine months have we started putting a team together. So we've gone from four people to 14 people since, since February. Yeah. On our third office of the year, we keep just outgrowing, outgrowing offices and having to move on. Cool. Um, and so my, our presence at VidSummit um, and, and at Blogosphere after VidSummit and probably at VidCon next year yeah. is funded by that raise uh, and by our, our building out of a marketing department. Without that and someone saying, well, we should be in these places and we should be speaking to our customer directly, then, yeah, we wouldn't have been at any, any of those. That was our first uh, – VidSummit was our first – significant spend at a creator event really okay yeah, yeah it was just so awesome to see you guys up there in the panel like talking about these issues like you know obviously at vid summit we had the option of where to be every session there was multiple sessions going on but that one really jumped out to me as you know i haven't i don't really foresee myself being someone who makes a lot of money on youtube but at the same time i would love to be able to use real music in my videos and um, and so when I, you know, have been on your site, on the Lyft site, it's awesome. 
it's so easy to use. It's great in every way. Um, but I always have a hard time figuring out like what music I want. So I just usually watch your videos that you guys put out and then the songs that are on your videos. I'm like, Ooh, that one. And that was like how I shop for music that I know you guys have. Right. So, okay. That's a really interesting bit of feedback. Like <laughs> that will go straight back to my team. Yeah. People, it's great. You know, that's, that's what they're using. Yeah, it's great. It's a great, it's an easy way for me to shop for music. Cause I spent like an hour on there the first time. Like, Oh my gosh, like what am I going to use? Right. So then I started watching your videos. I'm like, Oh, that's the song I need. Well, yeah. I, I, think, I think that is, um, probably a, a symptom of, although we're now signing labels and publishers and getting commercial music live and available for use on YouTube without claims, bigger and bigger artists are now coming on board. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I think that will be a turning point for users and people like yourself. Yeah. So you can go, actually, that song that I know and love mm -hmm. will work well, as opposed to you having to go digging or diving for the right sound. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, the, the bigger the labels we sign, the more chance there is of you hitting the homepage and saying, yeah, that song, I don't even need to hear it. I know what it is. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, so, so... Hmm. So just for people who are maybe listening to this and they're still maybe not really understanding fully yeah. what it is that's going on here. Um, sort of maybe just walk, walk listeners through like what it's like, like when you get on the site, like how does it all work? Like, you know, who gets money from what and blah, blah, okay. blah, like, you know? Okay. Yeah. So I, th I think the starting point is a piece of software that we built called Vouch and Vouch is the sort of magic secret source that makes the whole thing possible. It's Vouch that automates claims clearance in Content ID on behalf of your channel okay. if you've licensed the song. So mm -hmm. once you build that, you go, right, well, now we've got to build a front end. It works, right? You go and demo that to rights holders, and they start granting you rights to songs. You have to build a search and audition platform. Essentially, mm -hmm. we had to build Spotify, right? Like we did that in a year with the back end stuff, and you plug it into the YouTube API, and it all works. But essentially, you come, you log in through your channel, that means we store your channel ID yeah. and it's that piece of information that matches to the content ID claim when it comes through. Mm -hmm. um, and once you're logged in and we know what your channel is, we can price you up and you're priced up based on the size of audience you typically garner. Right? So if you're getting less than 50,000 views per video, then you would pay $8 for a song, but someone getting a million views per video, and earning a lot more money would pay a lot more money for the same song. Okay. Interesting. The, the, the pricing is estimated at about 10% of your estimated revenues. Okay. Uh, and again, that happens during login. Once we know your channel, we can see your analytics, not your financials, but just your audience data. And then we can work out where your audience is coming from, what that means for your CPM or your mm -hmm. RPM. And then we price you up accordingly from there. Why 10% of revenue? Well, I worked in TV for five years. Mm -hmm. And my music budgets for shows I produced were about 10% of the overall budget. Mm -hmm. Then I went into music licensing and I licensed into TV shows and I knew that their budgets were about 10%. So when you're trying to convince the music industry of a, of a, of a model that they're a bit wary of, then mm -hmm. the smartest thing you can do is go in with a precedent they are comfortable with and one they've already signed off on. Because you're going to get a lot of no's and you're going to get a lot of resistance and if you can limit the amount of resistance you get by knowing what their methods are and what they, what they are typically okay with, then you can move forward. 
So uh, the goal for Lit is to be Spotify for creators, right? I want, I want all the world's music in one place, available for license without getting a copyright claim. And there are, in, in any form of production, other than social video, mm-hmm. producers have access to anything in the world they want, mm-hmm. assuming they've got the budget and the time and the ability to get a license for it. Mm-hmm. The only people in the world precluded from working not just with production music or stock music, um, but also with commercial music is YouTubers. They're the only ones that aren't allowed to do it. Mm-hmm. And that's a nonsense. You know, there, there's two and a half million creators monetizing on YouTube. Mm-hmm. When I started pitching this to investors three and a half years ago, that number was 1 million. So it's grown 150% mm-hmm. in, in two and a half years. Um, and it's not going anywhere. It's not going anywhere. And, and, and I think more importantly, content ID causes the issue for creators. Facebook and Instagram are about to launch their own version of content ID called Rights Manager. So mm-hmm. this issue that affects at the moment just YouTubers is about to be a problem for up to 3.7 billion profiles across Facebook and Instagram. Now, I'm not claiming for a moment that all of those are monetizing channels, mm-hmm. but 8% of YouTube channels, 8% of 32 million YouTube channels monetized. That's the two wow. and a half million, right? If 1% of 3.7 billion on Facebook and Instagram monetize, that would be 37 million. It's 16 times the size of the problem on YouTube. And that's my message to the music industry, right? Once again, you've turned up for a gunfight on Monday with nunchucks, right? <laughs> um, and you know, there's, a, there's a Facebook fighter jet coming over your right shoulder and an Instagram tank coming over your left shoulder, and I'm trying to pull you out of the trenches, right? And that, that's how we internally communicate what we need to do on a business development side mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, and to sort of wake up the music industry to, to not resisting us. Yeah. Um, I, I posted a video on Friday of my girlfriend and I dancing to a song and just, I was kind of did it as a bit of an experiment as well because I haven't done anything like that on um, Facebook or Instagram before with, with, you know, copyrighted music. And I was curious to know what would happen. And yeah, I did. I did get a notification first on Facebook and then a little while later on Instagram that my video was muted. So they didn't remove the video. They just muted it. And it was like, I don't know, just, yeah. So it's a, it's a huge problem and it's, it's too bad because it's a really cool way for people to hear a song that they maybe haven't thought of in a long time. And then they're probably going to go download it or buy it. Right. So I feel like they're shooting themselves in the foot by not allowing us access. And it's so great that you've created this system that works that if more people get on board, it's going to be like you said, the new Spotify. Uh, I agree. And and the the reason, the reason that they're muting the video is because they haven't built that software yet. What's happening there is they, they're using a third party. They're licensing in someone else's tech until they build their own. And that tech does not offer rights holders the ability to put a policy on. So, on YouTube, they do have that option. So they say monetize, mm-hmm. track, take down or block. Mm-hmm. And monetize leaves your video up, but you get your revenue taken away. Mm-hmm. And block doesn't allow you to put up the video. Facebook is just muting everything it recognizes right now until it has its crap together, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when it uses its own software, it will act exactly like Content ID and rights holders will say, monetize this song, block that song, so on and so forth. Once it has that decision to make, that's when our software 
has somewhere to inter- interject in the process. Mm-hmm. That's where it does that on 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 YouTube. If you imagine, let's take song A, right, by an artist. I'm a label. I put that song into YouTube, and it says we we, we recognize it. We fingerprinted it. We will pick it up in any video it's posted in. What would you have us do when that happens? And they can say, monetize it. Send me the money. Mm. That's not happening on Facebook right now. The industry just goes, here's all our music. You don't have the rights to do any of this. Neither do your creators. So until we get our deal together and until you provide us with that software and those options, block everything. Question, do you know if it would have made a difference if I had done it on my personal account? Because I did do it through my my. YYC Fempreneurs, like, which is, you know, an organization, it's a page, right? And then my yeah. Facebook page is linked to my Instagram. Do you think it would have mattered if I would have just done that on my personal account? I don't believe so. No, I don't believe so. It may have something to do with the size of the account. I'm not sure. I'm not, we're not in as, in as advanced talks with Facebook as we are with the others, but I don't believe so. I think that even on right. personal accounts. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, we have the rights to all the music we represent. Mm-hmm. And the videos you're talking about on our Instagram, uh, in case it's Instagram that you're seeing the videos on, we, we get blocked. Yeah. And, but there's a button that says, unless you believe you've got the rights to this song. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, no. Yeah. So, <laughs> and you're so like, yes. Exactly right. And we, yeah. and we just send them a link to our, to our own license page. Oh, wow. We license the song and, it, and, and then the video goes up. On okay. YouTube, you don't have to do that because, you know, we just the software is doing it for us. It is just so mind boggling that in such a technologically advanced world, this is still a problem, right? It is. And uh, I can't tell you, I can't tell you the resistance we've had. I don't understand why the resistance, it's so bizarre. I mean, I I remember you guys saying on your panel, like the music industry is still like, you know, like they're running in like the radio mentality days of like every time they play the radio, you get paid and like, like, yeah, that's yeah. not the world we live in. <laughs> I know. Look, I've said it many times, but when it comes to adopting innovation, the music industry has only ever slightly been ahead of the Amish, right? Uh, <laughs> and no one else. Um, and they, they, if you think back in time immemorial, they have resisted all innovation, mm. right? They didn't want CDs, and then they saw how much quicker and easier it was to print the cassettes. Uh, they didn't. They, they, they sued the arse off Napster. Which I get, it's, it yeah, was a downloads, but the gene is out of the bottle at that point, right? Yeah. And and when iTunes comes along and says, "Well, we're going to legalize it, and this is what you're getting paid," they tried they tried to stop iTunes doing it. They really? didn't want CDs because we're making a killing on CDs. And also, when we put out a CD, this album is fifteen pounds, and this album is nine ninety nine. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Because I said so. Right. <laughs> so so. It, what they what they don't like, traditionally the music industry has monetized scarcity. We control the, the manufacturing. We mm. then control the supply chain. And therefore, we tell you, the retailer, you can have it to sell as long as you price it this way. Mm-hmm. Where with MP3s and iTunes coming along and saying, every song is going to be 99 pence. Mm-hmm. They were like, no, don't want that. Like, this takes away control of how we move the music industry forwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, it... Monetizing scarcity does not allow for democratization. Mm-hmm. Um, democratization is what happens with digital innovation. <laughs> um, and what they, what they are so fearful of is essentially their per unit costs. Whereas what everyone that's innovating has tried to say to them is lower fees, higher volume. Yeah, you right? could pay more if you let more people have access. Exactly. Yeah. 
Exactly. So trying to convince an industry that has traditionally earned all its money through, through making its assets scarce and owning the means of production and, and distribution, yeah. making them try and liberate those assets from mass consumption and see where the dominoes lot fall, right, mm-hmm. is, is anathema to them. We, I mean, when I first started, everyone said, well, great idea. It'll never happen. You'll never, you'll never get them to give you the music. You'll never be able to operate with it. Even some people at YouTube went, yeah, good luck. Yeah. And, and they weren't wrong. Like, I think we're proving them wrong. Mm-hmm. We've just done a deal with, I say just, it's almost four months old now. We just can't announce it. Um, but with one of the biggest labels in the world. Yeah. Um, and it took three years. I'm just looking back on my notes from Vince Summit because I remember there was a guy up there and I think he like works with Casey Musgraves, which is a name that I know because I'm a country fan. Okay. And he was up there on the panel with you. What's his name again? Are we allowed to name drop on this? Yeah, Zach Gershon at M Theory. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. so that's M Theory is a management services company. Okay. So they, um, again, a really innovative business, but they... And their managers manage people like Diplo and okay. uh, R.L. Grime and um, Flume mm-hmm. and Major Laser. Major uh, Laser, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so they've signed with us. But cool. you know, there's, still, there's still a lot to get done before we can get the, the music live or anything like that. There's so many stakeholders involved. So when you get them, when they sign, there's still a lot of... Yeah. Well, so labels mm-hmm. only own the sound recording. Oh. Right, you have to clear the publishing rights as well. Oh. So, if you think, let's take Warner for example, they they own the music from, say, Ed Sheeran. It's a bad mm-hmm. example because he writes all his own stuff, pretty much. But <laughs> actually, he has co-writers, right? So, you, yeah. so you sign with them, and yeah. let's say they, they opted that song into or that album into your interlict. Mm-hmm. I only have fifty percent of the rights I need. Mm. I need the publisher to sign it sign the deal right now publishers represent writers so if there's five writers on a track i might need five other contracts done and if one label one deal with label took three years with warner let's say that's coming um it shouldn't take me three years to get all the other five but it's a pitch from the beginning with each of them right like spotify had to go through like exactly what you're going through is what they had to go through in the early days, yes, but wow. but um, but once you break the back of it, you can start signing people. People become more familiar with the business model, right? So and if they I come to you and they're like, "We want this," <laughs> correct, correct. But so now Spotify uh, streaming is a thing. So yeah. if I was if if Lix was a streaming business, I could go to three or four businesses that represent these rights at scale for the music industry, mm-hmm. and I could get my deals done for fifty million songs probably within a year. Mm-hmm. when it's a brand new business model, you're having to pitch every single label and publisher as to what you're doing, why you're doing it, how you're doing it, and what the risks are that you're mitigating for them. Yeah. So I, I can tell you that there, there is a company uh, in LA that does publishing clearance at scale and royalty reporting at scale mm-hmm. for Spotify, Deezer, Tidal, Amazon Music, um, Apple Music, HBO, and Netflix. Wow. And now us. 
Nice. Now, they are in touch with all the world's publishers. They have every gatekeeper we need. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and we signed with them in March. We had 300 labels and publishers signed in March after two and a half years. We're now, in the last nine months, they've, they've taken us from 300 to 4,200, right? So we're signing catalog at a huge rate now. Awesome. But, but why isn't it 500,000? Well, because they're getting pushback going, what is this? Why should mm-hmm. I? Who else has? How mm-hmm. am I going to get paid? And they're having to pitch. You know, it's, it's incredibly time-consuming for them as well as my team. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, it's um, it's one of those things, right? Like, if you've got an idea worth anything, people are going to doubt your ability to build it, or people would have done it by now if it was actually possible. Yeah, and you've got a decision to make whether <laughs> to decide. Well, they couldn't do it because they're not me, or they hadn't thought of this, uh, yeah. or all of the above, and then decide. Well, they can't all be wrong. I, I'm not. This isn't going to be a walk in the park. Even though I think I'm the person to deliver it, it's going to be like running through treacle. Yeah. So back to the monetization sort of side from the artist perspective. So, well, no, I guess even from my perspective as a user, but yeah. like, I, let's say I pay $8 for a song and then yes. all of a sudden my YouTube channel goes from like, you know, 10,000 views to a million views. Am I paying per year for the songs or... Yeah. So, no, currently what's happening is that just to keep the numbers simple, because there, there is a there is a uh, $10 license for a certain bandwidth, right? So let's say it's $10. Of that, roughly, and it varies from rights holder to rights holder, but Licked is earning a third of that, the label is earning a third of that, and the publishers are earning a third of that. Right now, there yeah. might be more than one publisher that splits that third. Mm-hmm. There'll only be one label that keeps its third, and we keep our third. Mm-hmm. Uh, a third is much, much more than typical sync commissions, but typical sync licenses start at five grand and go up to five million, and you can survive off ten percent of that. Mm-hmm. When you're doing licenses at six pounds, right? Like you need a higher rate, and we've got the technology to support and the platform to support, and we've done all the groundwork. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the what that means for you as a channel, no. In theory, well, in practice, so 99% of the music on the catalog, you'll pay once and that'll be it, mm-hmm. right? The labels do have fears around the, the scenario you've just described. And so some of them are arguing for some, some protections against that. But honestly, the, the instances they always cite... And I'll tell you what they are. They always go, well, what happens if one of your users puts up a, a, a video and it becomes Charlie bit my finger? You know that video, Charlie bit my finger? No. <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a, like, I don't know, it's like 300 million views. It's just a, a, just a, a dad driving with two kids in the back, one four-year-old and a baby. Uh-huh. And, and he, he's recording his kids talking. And the, the four-year-old puts his finger in the, the baby's mouth, Charlie's mouth, and Charlie bites it. And he goes, oh, Charlie bit my finger. It's very cute, right? <laughs> it, went, it went like a vile sensation. And they go, what happens if someone, no, that's channel, had zero subscribers and now it's had all these millions of views. And I said, well, then it wasn't a monetizing channel. It's not yeah. the case we're talking about. Yeah. That channel was not a creator. Creator yeah. channels typically grow as a proportion of their subscriber base. Mm-hmm. And subscriber bases tend to grow organically. Yeah. 
The second one, they, the second uh, example they give me is there's that video of a wedding party at the ceremony who danced up the aisle two by two. They had this really funky choreography and it ended with bride and groom dancing up. I don't know if you've seen that one. Uh-uh. Again, hundreds of millions of views. And it was a song by Chris Brown. Okay. And again, I said, it wasn't a creator. Yeah. Like, viral videos tend not to come from the creator sector. They tend to come from typical UGC. Yeah. I caught my dad falling off a ladder. I don't have a YouTube account. I start one, I post it, it gets 10 million views, right? Yeah. So, um, so we've had to provide a lot of data. Uh, and there are some protections for the rights holders against that, but we don't really ever see them happening. It happen 0.001% of times. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that with the major labels, when they come on board, if you hit more than three to five times your typical average viewership, Mm -hmm. and that happens in the first 28 days, then they may come back to you to license it again. But Mm -hmm. that's about the worst that can happen. So there is a clause there that in the first 28 days, they can come back and say, wait a minute. Yeah, but at that point, you've already used a commercial song and earned three times more than you ever did before, Hmm. right? Um, And you can relicense the song for the the same fee Mm -hmm. and and keep all the rest of the revenue again. Mm -hmm. So, And again, that's on about less than 1% of the music we have live on the platform today. 99% of it, you just get to keep your money no matter what happens to the video. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and thank you again for uh, for referring me to that Masters of Scale podcast. I love that one. I listen oh. to that one all the time. Now the the interview with uh, Spotify guy, I can't remember his name now. Daniel Ed. Yeah, that was a good one. Oh, I, mean, especially from, I mean, I'm sure you were like, yeah, 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 yeah. But I was like, wow, wow. <laughs> no, well, it, 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 it was enlightening for me as well. Like, really? I, I reference him a lot because he's the closest thing I've got to... Um, a precedent right yeah like the person, like, I, what i'm having to do is what he had to do yeah it, and he's proof that you you just have to persevere <laughs> yeah yes <laughs> and yeah. you have the team and you have the yeah you're, you're taking the steps and it's gonna happen it, look and like i said everyone said to me you'll never do it and you'll never get the majors uh you're wasting your time i, I can't talk about which label we just signed but it's one of the, it's one of the big three Wow. Um, not only that, but they have equity in the business now. Congrats. Yeah. Wow. So, so, you know, people weren't wrong to think you'll never do it. They just should have said it's almost impossible <laughs> and no one yet has been able to do it. Right. And, and I think that's every founder's dilemma is do I go and do what people don't think is possible? Mm-hmm. So one of the guys that was at Midsummit, one of my favorite people in the face of the earth, yeah. Pat Flynn, he was there and he wrote a book called Will It Fly? Are you familiar with that book by any chance? No. And I read it a while ago and, and it talks about, you know, when you have an idea and you're pretty sure other people have the same idea, you know, you got to go through some steps. So talk to the women listening to this right now who have an idea for something and, you know, the market research that you had to do, different things like that, like walk us through the steps that before you even decided to make a go of it, what did you do? I I, I learned the numbers as best I could. Um, Because I had to try and walk in and convince people to bet on me mm-hmm. when I knew that they have a history of not betting on anyone. Mm. Um, 
So I had to learn what the size of the potential market was. I had to learn who the future players might be so I could not scare them into wanting to future-proof, but essentially say, this isn't going anywhere, right? YouTube's not going anywhere. Facebook's not going anywhere. Now there's Instagram and there's, right now, as you and I speak, there is someone in Silicon Valley patenting their, their user-generated content platform that we don't know the name of yet mm-hmm. that is going to take the world by storm in the next three to five years, mm-hmm. whether it's another TikTok or Snapchat or Musical.ly or whatever it might be. And, you know, consumer production is the future. Mm-hmm. So working out, what, what, not where, only where are we today, but where are we going to be in five years? Mm-hmm. And, and what, uh, what, what value do I provide you in that process for step one? Step two is to, I think, be prepared for why they've said no before. Mm. Speak to people in the industry. Speak to old heads. And ask yeah, I do them. have a lot of, sorry to interrupt you, but I, I forgot. I wanted to ask you this, this question about, you know, your, your television past. You, you right. <laughs> yeah, tell yeah. us a story about, was it a dating show? It was, it was. But let me just finish this. this, this okay. Point. Okay. I went to two or three industry lawyers. Okay. One that I knew, one that I just badgered people who knew them and said, get me a meeting. Yeah. And I said, what did they say no to before? What was the argument around iTunes? What was their argument around Napster? Mm-hmm. How did these guys win? And how did these guys lose? And what was the difference? Wow. And so I went in with, a, like, I sort of expected every argument they traditionally give, and I had an answer for it. Yeah. But didn't win right away. But it ends up, you end up winning one person over who internally says, listen, I know, I know we normally say no to this, but I think this guy's actually, he might have it sussed, right? And so that's the thing. So, so learn about your future market, existing market, but then find out why it hasn't worked before and why you're different. Yeah. Um, and you have relationships sort of in the music industry from years and years of, so you kind of had the names to people to go to, or did you have to, did you have to really work your connections in that phase of, in the research phase or? Yeah, the, the latter. When I say I worked in, in music licensing, I started in production music, which is sort of library music, stock music. It's not well known. So you're not yeah. working with labels and artists. Um, then after five years, I stepped up to working with unsigned artists. So we were competing against the major labels. I don't go and use the expensive stuff. This band you've never heard of has got this great song that's going to be huge in two years' time. License that for cheaper. So when I started this, I had no connections in major music. Okay, that's good to hear. I like that. I like those stories better. (laughs) A complete unknown. Now, like I said, I knew some industry lawyers Mm -hmm. just because the company I was at before was getting some some visibility. And I went to them and said, look, I've got this idea. Like, how would I get started? Who would I need to speak to? What are the names? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you don't have to know everything, but you should have an idea of what what it is you're about to do. The the dating show, yeah. So I started in television, straight out of university. I did five years at one small production company. uh, And I I realized quite early on that I wanted to be front of camera. I thought I'd I'd be a good host. and that's looked like a lot more fun than, than being a runner, right? And making the tea and sort of driving the van up and down the country nonstop. Yeah. So um, I waited a couple of years, learned the show inside out that I was on, that I was working on. Um, and then I went to the directors, the sort of camera operators, yeah. who became friends and said, will you come in and 
borrow, and this is not good for podcasts, but I'm, I'm doing inverted commas, speech marks, <laughs> borrow the company equipment with me on Saturday and help shoot me a reel oh. and direct me. And I shot my own show reel. And then it came up that, that our, about six months later, the uh, host of our show was leaving. He, he, he quit the show and moved to America. And I was tasked with finding our next presenter. Um, and I, I probably watched 100 reels. And I thought I'm as good, if not better, than most of these, but they've all got experience. So I changed the name on my reel to someone anonymous. And I went to the head of the company and I said, these are the best five. And she called me into her office five days later and said, I've got it down to these two. And I looked at the videos and one was the one with, my, with the fake name on it, my one. And she goes to me, how did you film this? And I went, I stole your equipment. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, well, you're very good. And I said, oh, good. Uh, and she said, I don't want to get involved in this decision. Uh, I'm going to send them both to the channel and I'll let them decide. But I won't tell them that you work on the show already. Um, and the channel came back and said, we like them both. Give it to the guy that's got experience. And so I lost out. Mm. And then I managed that guy for the next 13 episodes until the channel called and said, he sucks. Who was the other guy? Oh. And they fired him and I got the job unexpectedly. So yeah, I, I did that for three years. It was a national uh, terrestrial TV dating show called Dial a Date. Dial a Date. Yeah. Are there some episodes on YouTube that we can watch? My, I think my reel's on there and that's got some of it. Um, and then I got a, a, a live sports show. Um, and I did that for a, a year or two. Oh. Uh, so yeah, again, it's something everyone said to me, like, oh, you're pipe dreaming, Paul, you're at university. You're like, you're not going to be a TV presenter. You're like, oh, you know what? I'll, I'll find a way. Yeah. 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 Cool. So you just you go. keep going through life, proving the naysayers wrong. I like it. Well, I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. Fingers crossed. Yeah. That's great. So you, so you born and raised in where you live now? So I'm born and raised in London, yes. Yeah. Uh, my parents are from Cyprus, so I'm a first-generation immigrant. Oh. Uh, Greek Cypriots. Um, born, yeah, lived in London all my life, except for five years when I lived in the US. So I did two and a half years in New York uh, and two and a half years in, in LA. Mm -hmm. So I started at the bottom. My first day in music was in New York, a uh, music licensing company, production music company. Mm -hmm. uh, they were in, it was a British company, but they were independent. Within seven months, they were sold to Paramount. Mm -hmm. And within a year of that, Paramount sold them to Sony ATV, which is Sony's publishing company. Sony ATV fired my boss in LA, the head of US. Um, and they did a six-month search for his successor. By that time, I'd been at the company two and a half years. And, and they gave me the job. And I became head of US for that business. Moved wow. out to LA. I managed, managed a team of uh, 20, 30 people in business development in, in New York and LA. Uh, and that was tough because a lot of people left. A lot of people that were pissed that I got the job because they'd been there five, six years. Um, but, uh, you know, like some of those experiences were quite formative in, mm. in Lyft, actually. Do, do you know what production music does? I mean, you've probably been using it, right? You probably had to use Epidemic. Or, so it's like, you know what it is. It's composed, sound-alike stuff, no-name easy to license, easy to clear, blah, blah, blah. But when I moved to LA to take over at, uh, of that company, become head of US, for a few years, the music industry had been really struggling. Mm -hmm. and, and iTunes had, had ripped the, the bottom out from sales in the music industry. Like literally sales dropped 
within six months. Um, and it was slowly starting to recover after iTunes legalized it. What year was that? So Napster was sort of 99 to 2000. Yeah, okay. okay. iTunes launched in 2003. Mm -hmm. In fact, Napster, I think 99 to 2000 is late for Napster. It was probably 97 onwards because LimeWire and people like that existed before then. Um, but 2003, iTunes legalized it. That took a while to get traction and pick up. So even then, sales were whatever the label wanted versus everyone gets 99p or your share of it. Mm -hmm. So sales by 2007-8 were still at about 30% of what they'd been 10 years earlier. So <clears throat> we were able to go to massive artists and say, hey, like we, we, we worked with Snoop. We signed Snoop to do his own sound-alikes, if you like. Mm -hmm. So if you can go to Snoop and say, hey, Snoop, here's an album by a British guy called John Smith who lives on the coast in Bournemouth. He earned 500 grand last year from his album West Coast Hip Hop 3. Would you like to listen to it and tell us who it reminds you of, right? And he says, wait, who the f*** is this guy? Yeah. <laughs> How's yeah. he earning this money sounding like me? And you say, well, this is what we do. Would you like to produce music for us so that you can get in on this as well because if we can tell people hey you can't afford snoop's chart music well here's snoop's production music why would they go anywhere else right mm -hmm. and we saw the power of being able to market commercial names on a platform simple and easy to clear wow and so from that point forwards I've always, it's always been in the back of my head someday, you know, someone should do something like this. But you, are they were, people are right to say it won't happen anytime soon for traditional media. When I realized what I told you earlier about mm -hmm. media becoming, moving to the hands of the general populace, mm -hmm. I was like, that's, what it, that's where it happens. Spotify for creators, that's the thing that will make this happen. Um, and so, yeah, I can draw a direct line between two or three experiences that that shaped what Lyft is today. One of them, the earlier one being when I was in, in, in TV. So I was a researcher yeah. and I went, I went on a shoot with a director and we okay. shot for two days. And then he had two days in the edit suite before the show went live. Um, and day one, he leaves early cause he's sick. And day two, he calls in and says, I can't come in. I'm too ill. So the editor comes to me and says, well, you were on the shoot the night before, right? I said, yeah. He said, well, you have to come and tell me, what the plan was like, I don't want to go through hours and hours of footage. Like you direct the edit. So I went home that night and I was like, Oh, what an opportunity I've got to impress. And I grabbed all these CDs and I thought I'm going to put that song here and this song there. And uh -huh. I, walked in the edit, I walked in the edit suite the next day and he said, what's that? And I went, it's the music for the show. He said, Oh, we have a music budget. And I said, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I, I own this music. And he said, no, you own the CDs. And I went, yeah, that's what I'm telling you. I, 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 well, they're bought and paid for. We can use it. He said, no, Paul, darling, you own the plastic. Right? You do not own the music. To yeah. use that music would cost an absolute fortune. And I was like, but it's my music. And I remember that feeling of, of proprietor, yeah. right? That yeah. it was mine. And why can't I? I for this. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, when I talk to creators like, like yourself, and I go, you know, it's, they're your playlist you're putting together. Like you're paying artists when you stream their music. Mm. You do feel proprietary. Like it may not be my music, but I ordered it this way and I housed it in this playlist and I play it at certain times of the day or when I'm working out or, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and so it shouldn't be any different than, well, 
why can't I use it in my videos? Yeah. You know, I think one of the, one of the things, and this, when you said before about what should people be looking out for in order to win in their industry, one of the major things that we did well that, that no one else thought of when everyone said to me, you'll never get the major labels was we, we I realized intrinsically that there was one department at these labels that felt differently about this as a prospect than mm -hmm. any other department. And that was the marketing departments. Mm. So if you're the marketer, you're, let's say you're head of global marketing at Warner mm -hmm. and you've got, 40 offices in 40 countries that report to you with each of their local head of marketing. And you're putting pressure on them because there's pressure on you to make at least one song a month, a major hit in that country, if not globally. Mm -hmm. now, they have routes to market for that, right? They all know the phone number, email address, office address, and landline number of the relevant Spotify playlist for that genre of music. Mm -hmm. They have all the same information for the radio pluggers for the stations in their country that play that genre of music. Mm -hmm. these, these are business-to-business -business routes to market, right? Mm -hmm. I can look up the guy on LinkedIn and get his email address. How would you find the right influencer on YouTube? Because if you think your artist has an 18 to 24-year-old female-skewed fan base, predominantly yeah. in Central Europe, then how would I go about finding those people? Well, if people owe auth into licks, then we have that data. We will also be telling you which ones of those 18 to 24 year old females in Central Europe have searched for your artist before or have used similar songs before and not waste your time sending you to people that match the audience brief but only have a licensed grind. And so we pitched the marketing departments mm. and they went, are you kidding me? If you could build that, I'd use it tomorrow. Now, to this day, we haven't built that tool. We're in the process of building it. But, but you that's data required for the yes. tool. Yeah. But why would you build it until you've got an audience there? I don't yeah. want people using that tool and saying there's only one result, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but that started us in serious conversations with legal departments at the major labels. It was sort of a Trojan horse. Mm -hmm. And so I would, I would also advise people to think about Think about where the pain point is or what, what, which department in the company that everyone says she was going to say no, who is the stakeholder or the gatekeeper there that actually would benefit from using that tool and see if you can win them round first. So, so tell me more about the, the, the Fempreneur audience then. Yeah, well, I mean, my, my audience, they're women. They either have businesses or they're getting ready to take the leap. Okay. To, you know, actually launching and, and putting their business out there, um, on social media. These are usually, um, like service or knowledge based product type businesses. They're not, you know, technology businesses like yours, or, I mean, I'm not sure who all is listening, but for the most part, um, if they're attracted to me, they're attracted to doing sort of what I've done, which is yeah. you know, monetizing my brain, basically learning yeah. and then creating products from what I'm learning and then making money from that. And a big, a big commonality with these women too, is that they're really passionate about helping other female business owners succeed. So they'll often yeah. lend their skills to someone else who doesn't have those skills and and, and yeah, so a big part of what I do is a free six week marketing school. 
And okay. that's been a huge success. And so each week we, we focus on a different topic and that's what the book is about. So the book is those six weeks broken down with a lot more meat because it's a book. I, I don't I like I have an hour with them on Zoom once a week, whereas in the book I have lots of time. So I'm taking a much deeper dive into those six topics. Okay. And um, yeah, but I don't talk about... I don't talk about that, how to prepare and how to be sure your business is going to be a success. Like I don't do the, will it fly thing at all in the book. So this is for women who, um, you know, and really there's not a lot of financial risk necessarily because a lot of these women keep their day jobs for, you know, as long as it takes to get things yeah. rolling. Okay. And, um, it's just a matter of, of just sort of, yeah, just having, I think it's, I, and that's one thing that I, I wanted to ask you more about is, is the leadership piece Like you lead this team and you've led huge teams in the past. And I see that as being a real, um, a real necessary factor is these women that try to start their own businesses that they don't view themselves as a leader. And if they, uh, don't really, they're not confident in themselves. Like they just, they don't, they don't make a go of it. That's one commonality that I've noticed. So how do you sort of, how did you sort of become a leader? Did your parents raise you a certain way, do you think? Or like, how did you? Um, that's a good question. I, I think, look, one thing I would say, which I think is, is germane to the podcast, is the happiest I've been in jobs and the best I've done at work have been under two women. Oh. Right? Um, oh. So two bosses I've had, uh, Christina Vaughan and Helen O'Hanlon at totally different companies, but I thrived under them. And these were, these were strong independent women who had empathy and were, had nurture. And I recognized that because the women in my family are incredibly strong and opinionated and independent. Right. Mm -hmm. And like everyone, they make mistakes, but mm -hmm. they, 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 for one reason or another, they've had to wear the pants in their households. Mm. Um, so I think what I recognize in, in, in a good female boss is that they can be strong, but also vulnerable. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I can be empathetic to that because that's not a particularly female trait. I think everyone is. Mm -hmm. But I think male bosses, A, really try and hide that from everyone. Mm -hmm. uh, and B, they've always found me a threat in some capacity when I don't ever want to be that to my boss. I just, if I'm doing well, mm -hmm. encourage me and congratulate me and I want to be your best number two. And it was, it's actually those two women specifically that throughout my time working with them said, You're, you should go out and do something by yourself and you should be doing this and you should be doing that. And, and I was going, no, 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 let's stay together and do really well and you be the boss and I'll be your number two. Right. Really? So I, I had a, a real complex about whether I had what it took to go out and do something. Yeah. But, um, but it was really working with them and the confidence they gave me to, mm -hmm. that, that, that made me take the leap. And it is a leap, right? Because yeah. you're having to go out on day one and go, this is my thing and I'm sure about it. Mm -hmm. When really, no one can be 100% sure of anything. Right? <laughs> um, and when you're asking people for a lot of money, that can be quite scary. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, look, it... It just comes down to, do I believe in this enough? Mm. Is it my opportunity to change my life? And, and is that not worth a shot? Right? Because mm. even if the worst happens and it doesn't work out, I'm eminently employable. 
Mm-hmm. And I can always go back to what I was doing and or I'll be that much more valuable to my next employer because I know what they will be going through mm-hmm. and I'll have been there and done it myself. And you'll learn a lot more in your first year of business than you will uh, by a year, a year of staying in your job. You know that, right? Yeah. And it's an interesting story was that, that the guy that was my seed funder uh, gave me three quarters of a million pounds on, on day one to start the business. He he joined the company full-time a year after we started. So he gave me that money and works for the company for free and reports to me, right? It's a very very weird situation. He reports to me in the office and I report to him outside the office, right? But when he started, he said to me, what should I expect? And I think he meant like, what is the day-to-day of the office like? Because I've been my own boss for 14 years. Mm-hmm. But what I said to him, and, and he always reminds me of it, is I said to him, don't expect to get to enjoy any of our successes for longer than 24 hours before someone kicks you in the nuts. <laughs> nice. <laughs> right? and, 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 and he reminds me of it on, on an almost monthly basis now because 24 hours became 48 hours. Yeah. 48 hours became 72 and 72 became a week and a week became a month. As you start to break down these barriers, mm-hmm. you get bad news more infrequently, right? Because mm-hmm. at the very beginning, everyone's telling you no. Well, why should I trust you? What have you done before? What proof have you got? Who else has signed up, right? Mm-hmm. And you go, no one, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> nothing like Right. And so there's constant no, 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 no. But once you start to win battles, that happens more infrequently. So um, I would say, don't be scared of that. Like expect it. And if you expect it, then you just know that it's just a numbers game. Each no becomes a, well, I, I, I'm batting at about a hundred, right? Yeah. So when I, when I get nine no's, I should be positive because I'm about to get a yes, right? Yeah. As opposed to, <laughs> I've got nine no's and Jesus Christ, this is never going to happen, right? Um, mm. It's a bit like wanting to, to, um, to meet a member of the opposite sex or the same sex, yeah. someone you're attracted to, right? Yeah. Being, if you go after something that you want authentically mm-hmm. and you get rejected, being hurt by that or, or not doing it for the fear of rejection is almost arrogant because it suggests you expect everyone to find you attractive, right? Yeah. And I, I've always worked on the basis that, yeah, like, of course, of course this person doesn't want to be with me because not everyone does. And as long as I keep going after what I want, eventually I'll meet something that I want that wants me as well, right? Yeah, exactly. so then you can do it respectfully and you can be authentic and honest and go, that's not a problem. Why would I get offended by that? It, it suggests I expect everyone in the world to find me attractive. And, and it's the same with business development like mm-hmm. you're gonna get no's not everyone and sometimes it takes for someone else to want you for the person that rejected you to want to come back mm-hmm. and again there are people there are labels that wouldn't sign with us that see the announcements we make in the press and go oh well i didn't realize they were on board like let's take another look at this so embrace the losses prepare mm-hmm. for them and know that you know, there, are, there are sunnier days ahead Wow. Thank you so much for all of that. And thanks for being on this podcast. Like I know you're, you're busy and you're up to some cool shit. And so thank you for taking the time to 
share your wisdom and what's going on with you and this cool thing that you've created that's going to help all of us as entrepreneurs. So yeah, so thanks for persevering. And um, yeah, I think we should probably wrap it up here. So how can people, you know, L-I-C-K-D dot C-O, right? I have yes. my sticker on my phone still. from <laughs> um, So they go there and like... You just click register. It yeah. will take you through a Google OAuth process. It okay. links the channel and then the, the, the software handles everything from there. Awesome. And Instagram? At Get Licked on all platforms. G-E-T-L-I-C-K-D. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. On every platform. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, all of them. Um, Listen, you don't need to thank me. It's an absolute pleasure. I think what you're doing is incredible. You're a formidable woman and oh, you, you are much further down the line towards your success than, than I am. And so <laughs> it's, it's a nonsense to think that there's anything other than gratitude and a yes when you ask me to do this. So wow. it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. I hope everyone's enjoyed it. That's our episode. Thanks for listening. Again, for more information on the Fempreneur Marketing Book Launch Party, head to yycfempreneur.com. And for all your fitness and nutrition needs, you can find me at m12fitness.com or on Facebook and Instagram at m12fitnessliz. See you next time.